Hello, this is Chris Safarova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Our podcast sponsor today is strategytraining.com. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, you can get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It is a free download. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And if you are currently working on your resume, thinking about getting another role, finding another better role for yourself, you can get McKinsey and BCG winning resume. It is also free download. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash resume PDF. And Firms Consulting is, of course, F-I-R-M-S Consulting. And today we are speaking with David Kroll. David is the Chief Executive Officer for Church Home. David, welcome. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. David, so you began your career within investment banking, wealth management, technology. So I feel like we have to start there. Maybe you could talk us through your journey and what made you make such a big turn in your career. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, I, I can say, like, I'm sure many of your listeners, my journey to be where I'm at today, which by by no means do I consider a, a final um, really destination. I think the journey of life continues um, through so many unseen twists and turns, but um, it was definitely not a straight line. It was zigzag and and all over the place. Um, so I really began my career uh, in, you know, post-college. I, I studied political science and I studied business and graduating. It was kind of in, in the uh, turmoil of the 2007 housing crisis, which so uh, devastated the economy of not just the US, but the globe. And so it was a very turbulent time to say the least, as far as trying to plot my first step. And I was fortunate enough to come on as an investment banker um, in that time, which did not make any logical sense. Goldman was going under, Lehman was going under, um, sorry, not Goldman, um, <laughs> Lehman Brothers and uh, and others, but um, Goldman is still very much alive, just to be clear. <laughs> but it was it was crazy and uh, was fortunate enough to, to come on as an institutional equity salesman and felt very unequipped for that role, but got dumped into the deep end of the pool with no water wings on to say and then began really the journey of my career. So uh, I was an investment banker for about three years, pivoted to really help individuals within wealth management and estate planning and strategy. Um, I was recruited out of that into technology, specifically within unified communications, when VoIP and, and so many of the technologies that are commonplace and in everybody's home today um, was not common whatsoever. And so, Really, I would say for the first time in that juncture, got to to see the current communication innovation that has taken hold. And thank you to Zoom, which we're on right now, and so many other platforms that have allowed us to continue to be efficient as far as a society in the midst of things like global pandemics. Thank God for the penetration of technologies. Uh, but that journey took me on. Um, at one juncture, I was actually working for three different organizations at the same time. I kept trying to to quit <laughs> and and organizations uh, wouldn't wouldn't let me. So uh, I tried to quit my role within technology to work for a nonprofit in the greater Pacific Northwest that worked with youth. Uh, because at the end of the day, I always felt this nudge, not just to make money. Um, I you know have achieved a small amount of success, nothing really um, tremendous, but I've, I've been very exposed to a lot of individuals that have had extreme and hyper success, you could say. And seeing the fact that money does not equal 
happiness, the infamous line, more money, more problems. It's so, so, so true. Realizing that, that I wanted to spend the majority of my time, not just creating wealth and resource for myself, but genuinely wanting to invest that in other people, which I believe is the greatest joy in life. And so uh, took on a role within a nonprofit helping young people and then came on with Church Home uh, about 10 and a half, almost 11 years now uh, from where I'm at today. Uh, held different roles kind of throughout that journey and, and progressed throughout the organization to sitting in the seat that I'm in now for the last four and a half years as chief executive officer. So a lot of twists, a lot of turns from investment banking to working for a faith community. I never thought I'd find myself where I am today, but I couldn't be more grateful. And did you become a pastor yourself? I did. Yeah. So when I first came on with our organization, I actually was, like I said, helping an organization with young people. And at that same time, uh, I came on as actually a, a youth pastor. So from investment banker to youth pastor, two very, very different worlds. And uh, But I couldn't have been more grateful for that transition and the journey that I'm at. So yes, I actually have held pastoral roles along the way within my journey. When did you have that first thought that, you know what, I will become a pastor one day? You know, it goes back for me into my childhood. I did not grow up in a uh, in a Christian household. I actually grew up in a Jewish household. And um, the concept of faith was not really something that I was very connected to. I thought the purpose of my life was to make as much money as possible and to marry the most beautiful woman possible, which, by the way, I love my wife and I think I succeeded on that one. So that's good. But um there was a sense of loneliness and emptiness in my heart. And I remember even as a young man going to bed and feeling this sense of emptiness. And I would think about eternity and I was overwhelmed with this sense of, you know, one day I'm going to pass away and it's going to be dark and nothing forever. And so that kind of loomed over me. And I kind of drowned that out in my own success. As a young man, I um, excelled at different things. It's very random, but I don't know, I don't know if you've ever seen Riverdance before. You know, Michael Flatley, the guy with a shirt off that doesn't really move his upper body, um, but dances, uh, the Irish step dancing. So I did that uh, for many years and uh, was ranked within the world within that and, and traveled the world. And um, it, none of those things seemed to drown out these, you know, looming big thoughts I had in my mind until one day I was exposed for the first time to the message of Jesus as a 17 year old through an organization called Young Life. And my life was changed forever. Uh, I... You know, it wasn't anybody convincing me of this way of faith. It was me alone in my bedroom uh, reading a Bible I got a hold of and thinking to myself, this person, Jesus, all I knew is that I used his name as a cuss word and I wasn't supposed to believe in him as a young Jewish man. And uh, he got a hold of my heart and has changed my life forever. And since that moment, um, I've always been passionate about the this above all else within my life. And so it really was never a goal for me to become a pastor. Uh, in fact, I, I thought that my my job was going to be to try to become a successful businessman and make money to give to organizations that help serve people like churches and other organizations. Um, but I felt the plans of my life were steering me elsewhere. And I really feel like, it, you know, if anybody's been, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, individuals who are looking to transition into a new role or these resources that you have, and, and it's incredible. I think if you're in one world called the business world and, and you're supposed to be working in a nonprofit sector per se, I feel like you'll be haunted forever. And if you're in, trying to make it work in a nonprofit world, but you're called really to the business sector, um, you'll be haunted in that way as well. And I felt as though through investment banking, wealth management technology, I always knew deep down in my heart that I would be most fulfilled doing what I was most passionate about, which is the work that I do today. 
how things changed once you made the shift and started actually following your heart? Uh, made a lot less money <laughs> was, was step number one. Fortunately, um, within my transition from tech to the nonprofit world, I was engaged to my wife. And so I didn't pull a bait and switch on her. But yeah, I think the first thing is realizing, okay, um, resource is not going to lead me. Passion is. And um, I think a lot of business leaders in here can can really relate. Whether you see a gap in the market, a hole in the market, you're creating a product because you want to serve people within that gap. There's so much more power in that versus I want to create a business just to just to create wealth. And so for me, it was really that driver of, hey, this is what I'm most passionate about. And so shift number one was a lot less resource, but that didn't matter to me because I was going after what mattered most to me. Um, shift number two was I was a lot more happy in my everyday life. Um, I felt there was a congruency in the ways in which I got to spend my days and there was passion behind my work. Um, I felt more energized at the end of my day. I felt like I could pay better attention to my family. Uh, so there was a lot of personal benefit, um, that came with some sacrifice. Um, but I would say, you know, what does it profit somebody to gain the whole world? yet lose their soul. And I felt like in so many ways, I was able to regain my soul um, that in so many ways with the majority of my time, for those of us who are in the business world or the workplace whatsoever, it's the majority of where we spend our time. So the moment I felt the alignment of where I spent the majority of my time with what I cared about most, there was a sense of freedom that just came upon me. When people make such a big turn in their life, it usually happens because life hits them in the face with a brick saying, hold on, you are following the wrong path here. It's not for you. Was it like that for you or did you just had some realization? Do you remember that defining moment when you made the decision to make that turn? Yeah, um, it, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, when everything is going great, sometimes it's hard, you know, if it's not broken, why fix it? Kind of a sta statement, you know? Um, for me, when I, when I was within wealth management and was about to make the pivot to technology, I was, um, I was married and I actually went through a divorce very early on in my life. And that was an incredibly painful moment in time for me in my life where I really had the opportunity to reassess um, kind of a fresh start. And I was, you know, in my mid twenties, so I wasn't old by any sense of the word, but um, for me, it hit me very hard. It was the last thing I, I imagined uh, being a part of my story, let alone at that juncture in my life. And so um, I think that opportunity really helped me to reassess my future. You know, I, I had, um, when I was an investment banker, I was around um, a lot of individuals, which I'm sure there's some of your listeners that are in the investment banking world as well, um, that were had been very successful, yet um, I saw this emptiness kind of behind the success and I keep referencing that, but I realized I didn't want that to be me. Um, I thought about the legacy I wanted for my family, for the kids that I would have one day, for the family that I would create. And um, that that brick in the face moment that you reference really was the loss of that relationship for me, which allowed me to reassess and really start building my life um, again at a very early stage within my career and my adulthood. So um, as painful as it was, I wouldn't change a thing. And I'm beyond grateful for even the difficult moments. And by no means is that the only challenging moment I've had in my life. It's been, you know, like any of us, life is real. And um, sometimes, you know, there's ups and there's downs and there's tough seasons and good seasons, but learning how to um, take all those challenges that life throws at us and use them as an opportunity to learn and really assess what's most important. And so 
that's what happened to me. David, and did you have clarity on what you need to do? Or did you just kind of saw the first step of dark staircase, but you weren't sure where it will lead you? Yeah, I mean, if anybody gets that level of clarity, um, I'm very jealous because I definitely did not have it. It was a definitely a step-by-step journey. Um, it, it was not clear. And a lot of my steps that I felt like I was supposed to take in my gut, you know, that gut level intuition, you know, for me, I think it's clear to your listeners, I'm a faith person. So um, for me, I think it's bigger than gut. I'd actually think it's it's God giving me a sense of what to do next. Um, and, but if anybody has ever felt that, that level of intuition or direction or guidance in their life before, um, you know what I'm talking about, but the steps that I took were very illogical. They, they seemed backwards and a lot of people applauded me. I mean, when you get a job as an investment banker, it just sounds sexy. It sounds cool, right? Uh, you get to fly around on a private jet and entertain hedge fund managers, but that's, you know, that's by all means, everybody's like, oh, that, that guy's doing pretty good. When you leave all that behind to go make, you know, 300% less than your technology job to go serve young people, people get very confused very fast. And so um, you really have to have a, a, a sense of true north as far as what's guiding you. Uh, but yeah, it was not clear beyond each step. And I think I just trusted that process, knowing that, um, you know, obviously my faith is what matters most to me. Um, serving others is what matters most to me. And as long as I follow down that path, I truly believed that there was going to be light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm very glad that I did. Was the first step clear or was it a choice between a few and you kind of just took one of the kind of options and went with it? Yeah. To get very specific, I remember um, sitting in my office at my tech job and one of my best friends, friends came to downtown Seattle, which is where I was working at the time um, to meet me for lunch. And, um, I had been searching, uh, within this organization that I wanted to work with. And there was a role just North of Seattle, um, for this organization. And so he came over and we have this very similar value set and, you know, we discussed it and he, we prayed together and felt like, you know what, the first step is I'm just going to, no strings attached. I'm just going to lob in my name and put it into the hat. I'm just going to apply. So that was step one. So I do step one, honestly, not assuming that I would even get a call back because I have no experience within the sector. And it was kind of a more senior role within this organization. Um, and sure enough, I, they reach out to me and say, Hey, we would love to do a phone interview. I'm like, wow. Okay. Step two is doing a phone interview. Step three, hey, we would actually love for you to come and meet with our board of directors and have a conversation. So I, I come and I do that. And then I have one final interview. And you know, each one of those was a step because I felt like for me, it was a crazy thing, just even putting my name in the hat for something so 90 degrees or 180 degrees from what I was doing. And each of those steps, those little things felt like mountains to me. But every time I, I, I made those steps, I felt a little bit of me come back to life. And I think that was that sense within me of knowing really what my true calling and purpose was as far as my vocational time that I was going to spend in my working hours, having that aligned with, with this great passion that I have. Once you switched and started in this new role, were there moments when you were thinking, maybe I made a mistake? <laughs> oh, yeah, to say the least. Um you know, I would say not early on, but um, as, when I stepped into the role that I'm in now as the as the CEO, absolutely. Um, and listen, those weren't short; those weren't long lived. Um, I think I had enough 
awareness around um, the situations that made me feel that way to where I talk myself off the proverbial ledge. There's people who I know, I was talking to a friend about this this weekend, who will make the statement like, I've, I've written my resignation letter, I've just never turned it in. I'm not that guy because if I write a resignation letter, I am going to turn it in. So I just never write it because if I do, I'm going to go through with it. So, um, but yeah, I, I think um, the challenges face us. And I think the more seniority you have within leadership, the more exposed you are to the joys, but even more so the pains of leadership. It can be isolating. It can feel dehumanizing. It can feel disconnected. Uh, you know, you can feel very misunderstood. You have to learn how to die to the sense of pride that I think is within many of us in wanting everybody to perceive us in a positive manner, because that's impossible if you're going to be in leadership and actually do anything. Um, so yeah, I think along that journey of leadership for me, you know, I think anybody who's on, on your podcast right now, who's a CEO, um, at one juncture, you were doing it for the very first time. And if you can recall those feelings and those senses of pain as you grow within being at the most senior level of leadership within any organization, um, it comes with pain. But I think that in a lot of ways prepares us for the path that we have ahead of us to grow and expand and scale. And hopefully, no matter what your organizational goals are, is to serve more people, reach more people, uh, sell more product, um, you know, gain more viewership, whatever it may be, um, I, the road there oftentimes is filled with bumps and pains that are reserved for those of us who sit at the, the highest levels of leadership. What would you tell to yourself if you could give yourself advice before you took that role that you wish you knew then and you know now? The advice I would give myself would be to be more patient. I am not a very patient person and I have a tendency to, um, to not only just have patience, not have patience for myself, but also to not have patience with the team that works with me. And um, I have had to learn the art of patience above all things as a leader. Um, I want things to happen immediately, but um, what I thought would take four months has taken four years. What I thought would take two years has taken three years, but whatever the time difference is, it's very rare. It's almost like building a home. When you, if you've ever been through a remodel or building a home, you will know that everything is uh, either it's 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 over budget and not on time. <laughs> so uh, it's similar to building people, building organizations. And uh, I have experienced that to be true. So I would think the first advice I would give myself is to be more patient and whatever I would expect out of a timeline, at least double it. Now, that doesn't mean that I decrease my activity. That doesn't mean that I don't uh that I, that I, all of a sudden I don't, I don't work as hard or don't apply myself as much as I would with the same time constraint. It's just my expectation level, um, has to become greater. So I would say bar none, that is my, my greatest thing I would say to myself at the beginning of this role is to be, to have more patience. What do you think was the reason why you were offered that top role? What do you think is one quality or one thing that made you that top candidate? The thing that made me the top candidate, I think honesty, um, it's almost like going into a relationship. You know, if you can, you know, recall being in the dating stages, you know, the butterflies are there, the excitement is blooming, you know, you're on your first dates and everybody, of course, whether you're interviewing or whether you're 
you know, on dates early in a relationship, you want to present the best version of yourself. But uh, a lot of times, you know, we take it a little step further and all of a sudden we, we don't just want to present the best version of ourselves. We want to present our version, the version of ourselves we believe will be most well-received. And then the issue with that becomes is you have to keep that act up. And if you can't keep that act up, the incongruency becomes apparent and a level of pressure a leader puts on themselves is insurmountable. It's only amount of time before you'll break. So you have to be yourself. Um, I think the level of honesty that I brought to the interview process for the role I'm in today was genuine because if I wasn't the right person, I did not want the seat. But if I was, I knew that this was where I was supposed to be. So I entered into it without a pressure. Um, I really, uh, once again, I know I use this word calling a lot. And maybe for people who are not of the same faith persuasion as me, it may seem, you know, a little bit ambiguous. Um, I would liken it to strong intuition and gut feeling. Uh, but I felt like I was supposed to put my name in the hat for this role. Um, but at the same time, I honestly didn't want the seat I'm in. I didn't strive for it. Um, I didn't care whether I had the title of CEO or not. And I honestly think that level of honesty was uh, probably unique to the process. I think the second thing that probably made me a, a leading candidate was the fact that I was not trying to be the expert in the room, is that I realized I had never held a role in a position of this level of seniority before. And so instead of pretending like I knew things that I didn't, I admitted what I didn't know. But the thing about that is, is for me, I was very honest saying, hey, you know, here's four things that are going to be very significant to the success of this organization that I'm not an expert in. But do you know what I am good at? Finding the experts and empowering them to do a good job within those roles. And I think that was unique within the process as well. So the level of honesty, um, which pertains to just being yourself in general, but also um, what you're good at, but being very honest about what you're not an expert in. And at the end of the day, you know, I think I've, I've, I've read this line. I'm always very fascinated by special operators and special forces, as I know so many people are these days. But what I love is, is I read this line one time about Navy SEALs in the U.S. And they say that Navy SEALs are an expert at becoming an expert. So they may not carry expertise, but they know how to get it and to garner it and to equip it and to empower it. And I think that's what, what is needed in leadership far more than you being some unicorn genius. It's, can you be an individual who can swallow their pride? It doesn't have to be the know-all be-all, but you can engage individuals along the journey who have strengths that you don't have, who think differently than you think. You know, we think about diversity, which is a huge priority of ours. Uh, one, one huge category of diversity is a different way of thought. I may be a more intuitive thinker, where somebody may be a more analytical thinker. Well, we need both of those. We need analytical, we need intuitive, we need people who sense and feel, we need people who think and strategize. Um, we need all of those skills. And so making sure that you are aware of your blind spots and surround yourselves with people who have accompanying strengths to help ensure that at the end of the day, it's not about you, it's about the organization. It's about the health of the team. I love that line, expert at becoming an expert. You can describe a very good management consultant that way as well. Especially when you're starting out and you work across different industries, you need to become an expert really fast. Absolutely. And that was, you know, when I was in investment banking, I think I had a very good jumpstart there. It was my job to, it was to become an expert in 430 different companies that we ran research on across multiple different sectors. 
And so that got me thinking with the breadth early on in my vocational career that I think I was able to carry forth in, in my leadership. Let's talk about Church Home because many people will not be very familiar. Let's talk about the organization, what you guys do, and then we will talk about your specific responsibilities. Yeah. So really quickly, Church Home uh, started 31 and a half years ago in a courtyard Marriott in Kelsey Creek, Bellevue, Washington. There were 22 individuals. It was a couple named Wendell and Jenny Smith who had moved up from Portland, Oregon to start a local church community. And um, it, it was originally not called Church Home. It was called the City Church. And um, the City Church grew from those 22 individuals in a courtyard Marriott in Kelsey Creek into, in 2016, what was about 20,000 different people across seven, seven different physical locations, including, uh, you know, multiple locations in the greater Seattle area, Los Angeles, Guadalajara, Mexico, um, a podcast that's listened to by, by several hundreds of thousands of people on a monthly basis. And um, so by all sense of the, the, the word had turned into a quote unquote mega church, if you will. Um, yet we were taking a look at what was happening within society and the world and the mechanisms that we were using to reach people and realizing their limitations. Uh, the first statistic that we saw that helped us to see that maybe we need to think about the way we approach community differently was the statistic that came out in 2016 from an organization called Christianity Today. And this was a study on growth in the faith communities of church. And what it found was that 96% of church growth was something they called transfer growth. And what transfer growth is, is when somebody already believes what you believe, they're already a part of a church, yet a new church pops up down the street and they've got a speaker, a pastor or a communicator that you like more or a band that plays music that you prefer. And so you leave church A to go to church B. And so what we were seeing was the fact that only 4% of all church growth was actually new people being engaged and served in their faith. So that was alarming, number one. Survey number two that we saw that was concerning was around how people actually grow spiritually. If, you know, I think everybody is familiar that, you know, church happens on Sundays, right? It's like you think about dressing up in your suit and your tie, whatever, you know, persuasion you are. Um, like I said, I didn't grow up going to church. So this is all a very unfamiliar world to me in a lot of ways. Um, but going to church every Sunday, right? And so there was a, a very large, there's a book called Move. It's, it's, it's really the findings of the largest longitudinal survey ever done in the history of Christianity. It was 1,000 different church communities, 250,000 different congregants. And the goal of the survey was to find out what actually creates spiritual growth. And what they found was that the mechanisms that we were using, which was large Sunday gatherings, were not creating spiritual growth. In fact, um, as they they used this survey, they found there was no difference in spiritual growth from somebody who attended church four times a year or 40 times a year. So I'll say that no, no difference in spiritual growth from the four time a year attendee or the 40 time a year attendee. The habits that they found that created the greatest growth spiritually were prayer and meditation on the Bible. That's those were the two habits that created a massive delineation. There was another study that was done on these kind of spiritual rituals and habits, um, which showed the massive positive impact uh, that, that it has on a human being as far as their alignment with their core values, 
decrease, decrease in anxiety, decrease in depression, increase in a sense felt of purpose and hope and life. Um, the person who practiced those habits four or more times in a, any given week. And so what we realized is that we were having these large church buildings that cost millions and millions of dollars. We were gathering thousands of people, but we were really only reaching tens or hundreds of people with millions of dollars. So the church model is, you know, you raise 10, 15 million bucks, you buy an old Sears, you retrofit it, you can fit 2000 people in there. But out of those 2000 people, you're telling me that only 4% of those 2000 people are new. So, you know, what, 80 people, that's, that, that's, that's a lot of money to reach 80 people. Um, you're basically building a country club. <laughs> so we, uh, we also, when we launched our V1 of our technology, our church home app back in 2018, I'll never forget. It was the first weekend we launched. We were in a Sunday service and I was in the lobby after a service talking to a community member, asking them, Hey, how are you doing? How's everything going? And this individual was like, Oh, everything's going great. You know, no, no complaints. Later on, I go on our app and we have this function. Uh, it was called the prayer wall and people could kind of post prayers and get prayer. And the same individual who told me they were doing great online admitted that there was something very challenging going on in their life and that they were struggling. And so we felt this delineator well, where you would almost expect people in person to be open and honest, but people were willing to be more honest about how they were actually doing online. And so it really helped us to, to say, hey, we need to rethink the way that we approach people. And in 2024, you know, the church world is one of the only worlds where people are still spending millions of dollars to reach hundreds or thousands of people. And that's considered quote unquote success. The rest of the world is leveraging thousands of dollars to reach millions of people. And so why is it that government and education and religion are always the sectors that are farthest behind in the globe? Uh, and the church is just allergic to innovation. A lot of times you think about, you know, uh, church and technology, people get a lot of times get very leery when we discuss this, but it's interesting. You know, you think about 10, 15 years ago, I have a friend of mine who, uh, runs a, uh, an artificial intelligence and virtual reality company. And he reminded me of the story of like 15 years ago when he was on Facebook and his mom was like, son, what are you doing? You're wasting your time on Facebook. This is ridiculous. And he's like, mom, you'll see one day. He's like, fast forward 15 years. I'm never on Facebook. And my mom's on Facebook all the time. So you know, the proliferation of technology is upon us. I have been to the ends of the earth in so many ways. I have been to the far most remote regions in Africa and seen people who have no shoes, yet they have an Apple iPhone. And so the prolifer proliferation of these devices is everywhere. You think about, you know, like I said, I'm a faith person. I, you know, read the Bible, believe in the Bible. Um, the number one version of this book that's now penetrated into the globe is through an app called the Uversion app, which has been downloaded 2.8 billion times. So uh, we have just said, hey, you know what? We, we think we can actually use this technology to help the epidemic of isolation, of loneliness, of depression, to help people to get engaged in faith, to help people to practice these rituals and habits of prayer, of actually exploring who Jesus is, no matter what you believe. Like you do not have to believe what we believe, but just give it a try. And we have seen thousands, tens of thousands. And we just 30 minutes ago actually released uh, the new version of the church home app. So um, we believe that that's going to serve millions and, and potentially hundreds of millions of people as it pertains to their faith journey and getting connected to this message. So 
there's a there's a quick fast forward today. We have sold most of our large assets, our community. Uh, now, instead of just kind of pumping Sunday gatherings, we meet uh, every day on our app. There is a new five to seven minute guided prayer, which walks people through a, a prayer and meditation. Uh, every week we gather in homes, parks, cafes all across the globe. Uh, my wife and I, we host, uh, we have 25, 30 people who come into our house every Sunday, kids, people our age, and we do church actually in a home setting as facilitated by technology. And then once a month, we do something called church home experience, which are these large gatherings uh, that we do. We do them in Seattle in person, LA in person. We're trying to launch 20 new ones this year uh, across the United States. Eventually they will be global as well. And we've created now through our technology, the ability to participate digitally live through our app, no matter where you're at in the globe. So that's really our methodology is that daily, weekly, and monthly faith practice in, in helping serve people on their journey. Congratulations on everything achieved so far and on important work you are doing. How many users do you currently have? Currently 200,000. Um, we are have kind of been sitting on that for the last three, four years. So when I took over as CEO, we had built um, version one of our app, which um, stayed up for a very long time, has had no updates in about three and a half years because we have had to upend all of our technology starting from the back end forward uh, and have had to rebuild it because we did not want to create a content digestion platform. Those are a dime a dozen. If we wanted just people to listen to our messages, we would use YouTube because it's the most predominant content delivery mechanism in the globe and it's hard to beat it. But we actually wanted to create a platform that could serve the individual needs of people on a unique basis not just within content, but within community and connection. And so uh, we spent this three, four year journey. We fully deployed Salesforce nonprofit. We have uh, an amazing tech partner who has built uh, an incredible app. Like I said, that we actually, just by the way fate would have it, didn't plan it right before this podcast, but just launched it about 30 minutes ago, like I said. So you can go to the app store and just search church home, all one word, and you'll find our app. And um, yeah, it's been a, it's been an incredible journey. So, uh, but it's taken quite some time. Like I said, patience, um, this has been a, a, a journey of patience to say the least, but we had built this technology to utilize everything that we know around click culture and addictive scroll, scroll culture, which too often is used to profit the bottom line of organizations. It only leads to further isolation, further comparison, further self-doubt, um, I mean, you take a look at all the statistics of what's happening to our young people uh, this day and age, and it's alarming. I've got three kids and, you know, I, I'm very concerned about the proliferation of technology um, and want to guard them from what I believe are the harmful aspects of that. And I think a lot of parents would would agree with me there. And so we have, what we have done is we have tried to take everything that we've learned uh, uh, through the journey of the last 20 years of technology as a society and apply it to what we believe is a very good and powerful message that's gonna serve people, it's gonna bring hope. Uh, just heard a story of um, somebody who, who was in uh, Finland. And um, in Finland, they have state-assisted suicide. And there was a young woman, she's about 20 years old, I think she's in her early 20s, and she didn't feel any hope, didn't feel like life had any more purpose. And so she put her name in her early 20s on the assisted suicide list in Finland. Um, Justin Bieber is actually a member of our church community and he posted on our app and talked about these daily guided prayers that we do and how much they had impacted him. And so this girl follows him on Instagram and saw 
Justin Post, and, and, and she says, you know what? I'm going to download that app. She downloads our app. She starts doing these guided prayers. And within a few, few short weeks, she all of a sudden starts to feel a sense of purpose and hope that she's never felt in her life before. And she makes the decision to take her name off of that state-assisted suicide list. And fast forward to today, and she's flourishing, doing well in life, is a part of our community, and feels like she has a purpose and identity and hope again in her life. And so it's our hope that we would use technology to help serve people, like I said, no matter what they believe all across the, the globe, but what we believe is the greatest hope that we can give them. It's an amazing story and just highlights how important it is that you followed your heart because you played your part in saving that girl's life. You know, honestly, if, if we, we talk a lot about scale and we want to serve a lot of people, but when you hear stories like that, you're like, if it was just for her, it's all worth it. You know, if it's just for her, what's, you know, what's one, one, one life worth? Uh, it's invaluable. It's invaluable. We believe in the value of human life and the dignity of all souls. And, um, you know, if we get to serve people, what what greater gift and joy do we have? To me, I think it's the greatest gift on the earth. David, what are some of the most challenging responsibilities you feel you have right now? Um, I would say leading a non-technical organization uh, and trying to be very dangerous technically is a is a big challenge. Um, so what I have learned uh, in that is 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 to not try to create a technical org out of a out of a non-technical org, but to try to find the best partners that you can articulate clear um, business objectives and purposes to who can help ex who you can trust and who can help execute on a high level from a technical capacity, which is incredibly difficult to find. Uh, but thank God we we have found that through a very painful and windy journey itself. Um, that's been very expensive as well. So I've made a lot of mistakes uh, along the way. I think. You cannot worry about being perfect. Um, you know, I, I care a lot about stewardship and especially as it pertains to finances, overseeing a nonprofit organization. Uh, some of the biggest challenges that we have faced has been uh, pretty much completely changing uh, the way our income is structured as an organization. When I came in, we had 125 staff members. Today, we have 45. So we have gone through massive organizational shifts and changes. We've gone from a $25 million budget to a $10 million budget. Um, those are not easy changes and shifts to go through. They're painful. Uh, they're emotionally taxing. Like any leaders who are on this podcast, um, the hardest part is always going to be the fact that we're leading real, living, breathing, feeling human beings. And uh, early on in my leadership, I think I overvalued IQ and I undervalued EQ, meaning I overvalued smarts and strategy and I undervalued organizational health. And uh, very early on, especially just given the type of organization that we are, I learned to completely pivot that. And the fact that the organizational health of church home and any organization is the, actually the true limit of success of that organization, not how much talent you have. You can put the greatest talent in an emotionally, uh, toxic and an organizationally unhealthy environment and watch it just totally disintegrate. And um, I have learned those journeys. So, you know, I would say it's a multiplicity of things. I'm really grateful for the journey we're at now, but it's been four years of trial to get to a place where we finally feel this incredible wind and momentum at our back. And I think a lot of it is just keeping your head down, not reading too much into the highs and not reading too much into the lows and just continuing to put one foot in front of the other. David, we only have a few minutes left to wrap up this amazing discussion we had today. What would you tell to someone who is listening to us right now and feeling that they are also on their own path, the way you were? 
the way I were earlier on in my career, what would you tell them? Man, I would tell them um, two things. I would just say, keep your eyes open for that next step. Um, I would also encourage them that the next step doesn't have to be the last step. So maybe it is just a step, not your, so don't look for the perfect step, but just look for a step. And, and then I would just encourage you to be courageous and to realize that it's all going to work out, that you're going to be okay. That at the end of the day, our jobs are not our identity as much as, you know, we can feel like they are. Your job is not who you are. It may be a big aspect of how you spend your time and uh, you may care a lot about it, which are all really good and positive things. But realizing that, um, you know, the journey to where you want to get is probably not going to be a straight path. So if you feel like you need to turn sideways or backwards to get there, don't be afraid to do so. Thank you, David. I really appreciate everything you shared today. Thank you for the work you are doing. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. And for everyone listening in, our guests again have been David Kroll and our podcast sponsor today is strategytraining.com. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, you can get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It is free download. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And if you want to improve your resume, go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash resume PDF, also a free download. Thank you for tuning in and I'm looking forward to connect with you all next time.